You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hey, this is Travis with Waterloop. I want to tell you a story about High Sierra Showerheads, who I'm proud to have as a sponsor of this podcast, particularly because they make incredibly water-efficient showerheads. I've talked with owner David Malcolm about growing up in California, learning about the importance of water and energy efficiency from his father. David has been designing high-efficiency nozzles for agriculture and golf courses for the past 30 years. The golf course people actually came to him wanting a nozzle that produced a uniform spray but was water-efficient. So David went in and designed a nozzle that explodes a low-pressure stream of water into a shower of large, powerful droplets. David actually thought this would make a great showerhead. And that's how High Sierra Showerheads was born. And nobody has their nozzle technology. It's patented, and you get a great shower while saving water. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Going to talk all about the ocean and ocean policy. Joined by Eric Schwab. He is Senior Vice President of Oceans and Ecosystems at the Environmental Defense Fund. Eric, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you, Travis. Really happy to be here with you. So the ocean is a big place, right? I think, what, 70% of our planet is covered by ocean. Um, We're not going to talk about all of that today. I really wanted to focus a bit domestically, uh, you know, when it comes to U.S. ocean policy and maybe the U.S. portion of the ocean, if you will. Uh, Could you help define that a little better for people as as we make that delineation? Sure. So the ocean domestically is out to the 200-mile limit. So... Uh, states control the first few miles, uh, and then three miles out to 200 miles is controlled by federal agencies or the federal government, and uh, the rest beyond that are uh, shared high seas areas beyond national jurisdiction, both um, from the U.S. perspective as well as global. So domestic policy is really about what happens within those 200 miles from shore, the decisions we make as a country, and how we manage our resources in that that area, if you will. Right. And that's defined particularly as an exclusive economic zone. So mm-hmm. we control what goes on there. It has largely its origins um, in fishery, fisheries management and policy, but you know extends much now beyond to um, lots of other activities uh, that might occur in that part of the, of the ocean. Okay. Well, as we talk about problems and challenges, I know there are many when it comes to the ocean. Um, but but what were you? What would you say are kind of like our biggest, most critical problems right right now? If you you know the kind of the top of that list when it comes to the domestic side of our our ocean. Yeah. So the biggest overarching problem, and it's not unique to the U.S., is uh, climate driven shifts. So the ocean has absorbed a lot of the warming. Um, associated with uh, climate pollution over decades, and uh, it's catching up to us. Uh, you know, we're seeing uh, impacts to uh, fish productivity and distribution, um, habitats all around our coasts, um, as well as to chemistry uh, 
and, and physical aspects, um, ocean acidification, potential uh, shifts in ocean currents, um, that are all these kind of big sort of overarching challenges that we face. You know, beyond that, uh, we've got localized pollution. So we've got, um, we've got uh, uh, nutrient-based pollutions in places like the Gulf of Mexico and Chesapeake Bay that originate far upstream. Uh, we've got plastics pollution. You know, all of those are having big impacts. We have big um, nutrient-driven dead zones uh, in many inshore waters uh, that have significant impacts on people and uh, fish and other aquatic resources. Um, so, and of course, historically, we've had um, in the U.S. Uh, big problems associated with overfishing. Uh, those overfishing problems aren't gone, uh, but they are largely in uh, a lot better control now in a lot of places than they ever have been, at least in recent history. Hmm. I'd like to kind of to pick on a few of those problems for a second and ask you about them. So the fishing one, commercial fishing, um, I don't know, I guess I assume that when people hear about the overfishing of the oceans, they think that's really an international problem. That's something that's driven by other countries, that's driven, you know, out in the Pacific Ocean by Asia. Um, but the U.S. has historically contributed to this overfishing from a commercial sense or continues to? What's, what's kind of our, our role in that? Well, sure. Uh, yeah, it's uh, less a problem in the U.S. now than it used to be. Uh, the, uh, the U.S. federal fisheries law, which is the Magnuson-Stevens Fisheries Conservation and Management Act, was um, reauthorized uh, back in 2006-2007. It, for the first time, set um, requirements to end overfishing and to rebuild depleted stocks in a time-certain period. Um, for all federally managed fisheries. Um, that time period um, was in like the 2010, 2011 time period. And we have made tremendous strides in rebuilding overfished stocks, um, rebuilding abundance, uh, in ending overfishing in uh, many of our uh, federally managed fisheries. Um, and in fact, in many ways that um, positioned the U.S. to become a model around the world for effective science-based sustainable fisheries management. That's not to say that's a problem that is completely behind us. We have ongoing challenges in some places. Um, it's also a problem that is going to be uh, challenged again as climate-driven shifts move fish in and out um, of different jurisdictional boundaries. Uh, but we're in a lot better place than we, uh, we have been for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, also on the marine species. So I think it's climate is the real impact here with ocean acidification, with warming right. temperatures and all those changes. That's really uh, having a negative impact on a lot of the, the sea creatures out there, huh? Yeah. And I mean, that's not to say we have had, we have had and continue to have um, bycatch issues. Mm -hmm. We have entanglement issues with fishing gear um, that affects turtles and whales and, uh, you know, bycatch of seabirds and sharks and, uh, you know, other species of concern. But again, many, many steps have been taken to admit, to, to reduce um, those bycatch issues. Um, that is an ongoing challenge. But again, exacerbated again by the fact that, you know, species are um, moving through, moving uh, into new places. Um, patterns have shifted um, as climate-driven um, shifts redistribute um, uh, you know, uh, ideal habitat and redistribute forage um, 
or target target species um, for prey uh, around the around the world. So these are all sort of real time issues that we continue to have to wrestle with. Hmm. And I wanted to ask about energy, uh, you know, along the coast and, and offshore. Uh, you always hear about drilling. That was a big push the past bunch of years, yeah. even along the Atlantic coast. And um, there's, of course, incidents that continue to happen. But um, is that not a huge factor at the moment uh, because it's not happen- happening in a widespread fashion? Or is, or is offshore energy still a concern? Is it contributing to problems? What's the, what's the situation there? Well, we're going through a much po- a much more positive shift, right? Where we're moving from a focus on um, on co- oil and gas exploration offshore, uh, which has myriad of problems as well as you know some impact to users, um, to one that is focused on uh, renewable energy offshore. And while we're very much in the early stages of that, and there will be some uh, potential site-based conflicts um, to address along the way. Obviously, focusing on renewable energies, um, energy sources as opposed to uh, carbon-based energy sources is going to be a big step forward for the oceans in total. We'll still have to have lots of discussion around potential conflicts between um, wind sites and uh, fishing activities uh, and shipping and other traditional uses of the ocean. Uh, but we're much better off having those discussions um, then we might be having discussions around conflicts with oil and gas exploration. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, one, one of the things I hear a lot about is aquaculture too, offshore aquaculture or, or in the ocean aquaculture, right? Um, what's the the prevalence of that, and um, is that a concern or is that a good step towards sustainability if done properly? So there are a range of different kinds of aquaculture, um, even in the marine environment. Uh, we have a pretty long history of successful shellfish aquaculture in various parts of the country, largely inshore. Um, and you can think about shellfish as um, very restorative in nature, right? While it's, so while uh, shellfish aquaculture might take up space um, in the coastal system, um, those are uh, animals that are out there filtering water, creating uh, very um, carbon efficient protein and providing local economic activity in uh, port communities. Um, Take that then a step further and think about things like finfish aquaculture, uh, and you have some more challenges to deal with. And this is not something that has been where the U.S. has been leading the way. In fact, we import uh, the vast majorities of the seafood that we consume in this country, either from wild capture or from aquaculture, and much of that, um, and, and half of what we consume in this in this country today, uh, roughly, comes from aquaculture-produced fish elsewhere. Uh, there are issues and opportunities associated with that, right? We don't have a lot of understanding of the local impacts in other parts of the world that result from that aquaculture production. So we've all heard stories of, for example, you know, destruction of coastal mangrove systems um, to, to create shrimp farms. Um, that's not to say that that's the sort of even the prevalent practice in other parts of the world, but you know, those are impacts that we are, are not seeing and are you know, sort of largely exported while we import our fish. One of the things we learned during COVID was that pretty complicated seafood supply chains aren't really in our best interest um, economically or 
you know, from a seafood, from a food security perspective. So there's a lot of really important discussion right now in this country about, you know, where we are going to procure animal-based protein in the future. How can we bring that um, onshore um, to or to the U.S. to realize the economic opportunities associated with that? Um, to get more control over our food supplies and to make sure that they're produced in the most environmentally effective way possible. So we're very much engaged now in a conversation about what the future of finfish aquaculture um, off of U.S. coasts um, could or should look like. And if we're going to do it, um, how do we do it in environmentally responsible and sustainable ways? And how do we do it in a way that, like we did with wild capture fisheries under the Magnuson Act, can become a model for sustainable marine aquaculture production in the U.S. Um, in the same way that we have become a model for sustainable marine capture fisheries? Uh. A lot, a lot to sort out with that for sure. Um, let's let's talk about the policy side. We are, you know, in a new administration. We're in a new Congress. When there's a change like that, uh, there's always a look at. Well, here's the policies that need to be changed. Here's what we'd like them to be. So, you know, as you all advocate for policy changes, what's what's kind of the top of your list? And and go ahead and, and be detailed. You know, what's what's broken, and what would you guys like to like to change those policies to? Okay, well, we already talked about a couple of the big ones, right? One is um, obviously shifting our dependence away from, you know, carbon-based energy sources to renewable energy sources. That's going to be one of the most important um, steps that we can take globally, but also for the oceans themselves. Um, and so, you know, doing that will, uh, you know, create a lot of important discussions about where, how, and when. Um, and, and how that happens in relation to, you know, other traditional uses like sustainable fisheries. Uh, you know, the second one which we touched on is aquaculture. And is there an opportunity for us in the context of global, uh, you know, protein production and global food security and domestic food security to sort of bring more of that production um, onshore? Uh, to provide that economic opportunity, to provide that sustainable productivity um, in a more uh, domestic context, um, I think you know we talk we you know we talk a lot about the needs uh, you know putting climate aside for a minute to um, protect um, to continue progress on sustainable fisheries, uh, but also to do a better job of protecting special habitats to protect other species like you know whales and sharks and turtles and seabirds uh, and, and, and do that more responsibly. And one of the things that um, we've heard a lot about from the Biden administration is their 30 by 30 initiative, which focuses on um, in the ocean environment, um, more sort of protected areas that are off limits um, to a lot of the, the, the traditional ocean uses that we um, imagine. And we're very much engaged in that conversation as well. Yeah, the 30 by 30 is something I wanted to, to dig into a little bit because I've seen it out there in the news and on social media and all kinds of people saying, I endorse the 30 by 30, you know. So it's like protecting 30% of the ocean and 30% of even the land by the year 2030. That's the basic concept, right? Um, right. How feasible is that? I know that there's big hurdles. There's always politics involved. Um 
what about it looking at just the U.S.? You know, the idea of us moving toward that. Um, I've I've always thought marine protected areas are amazing when they're really properly done and those areas are off limits. They let life <laughs> rebound and spill out um, and provide a wealth of resources outside of those areas. Um, but yeah, just how does this 30 by 30 possibility look to you guys? So I think our basic view, Travis, is that protected areas have a very important place in um, the ocean conservation agenda. Uh, and um, so we see that kind of a, a flag planted in the ground as a very important point from which to have discussions. I think that the um, considerations that we want to make sure happen is that it's um, that we ensure that the conversation is just not about that 30%, but about the other 70%. And the most effective marine protected areas are ones that are complemented by sustainable management principles um, around them. Um, they're also very effective if local people in those places um, sort of appreciate them, see the benefits um, that are derived from the protected areas, and um, therefore are party to sort of ensuring their protection and survival, you know, for, you know, decades to come. Uh, and, and finally, we think that protecting the right 30 means that we have to have a really strong climate lens to the evaluation. So um, the 30% that might be protecting certain habitats or species today might have to be a different 30% tomorrow. Now you can argue that, you know, that that is significant enough to allow species and habitats to shift over time as climate driven shifts occur. Uh, but we think that there needs to be an important sort of climate lens um, to uh, the overall discussion. So we're at a very, uh, I think, pretty early stage in sort of those conversations. Um, they're conversations that have to engage local um, communities and users. Uh, they're conversations that have to take into account the best available science, both today as well as, um, as it might be impacted by climate into the future. And there are also conversations that aren't unto themselves going to be the solution. Um, they have to be complemented by uh, sustainable management practices and principles, you know, on the rest of the ocean. Hmm. Um, I know that when it comes to the fishing side, which you've, you've talked about a lot, uh, there's a lot of people that make their livelihoods off this, you know, and, and they're, they're working hard and, and they're scraping to, to fish and, and, you know, pay the bills and all that kind of thing. Um, and when they hear a lot of the talk about boxing areas off or putting in new regulations, you know, that, that can, uh, they can resist if, if you will, right. or be concerned. How do you approach that from a relationship standpoint? How do you, how do you try to find a middle ground with, you know, the commercial fishing sector? Yeah. You know, there are other parts of the world, Travis, where, you know, we're engaged in exactly those discussions and, you know, just drawing lines on a map um, aren't going to lead to the kinds of protections that, um, that you might aspire to uh, through uh, a protected area strategy. Uh, but, if you can engage local people um, in discussions about the value of those protected areas um, in sort of as, you know, source areas for, uh, you know, spawning or, um, 
important habitats that critical critical species um, depend upon as a part of their life cycle. And they can see the benefits through increased um, increased sustainability or productivity um, of of those species kind of outside of those protected areas that gets to this kind of hundred percent solution that I'm talking about. So, um, you know, there are parts of the world where, you know, local peoples are seeing exactly that dynamic play out. Um, this protected over here area over here yields better and more sustainable uh, fisheries opportunities over there. They see that benefit. They defend um, then the integrity of the protected area, um, and they still manage to pursue their livelihoods effectively. Now, you know, obviously there are you know all kinds of different sort of gradations of of that dynamic, but um, that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of conversation that we think um, you know is most effective for everybody. Yeah, sure. I mean, I know from my work in the Chesapeake Bay area, even even in an estuary like that, where the the watermen are such a big part of the economy and the culture and the, the crabs and the oysters and you know having to put regulations on those, it was always a lot of of give and take and, and tension and, and negotiations for sure. Um, I want to ask about the climate thing. Uh, so I can see how addressing climate change helps the ocean, right? If you if you keep the temperature from rising and all this kind of thing that that benefits the ocean, how does certain how do certain measures for the ocean's benefit help with this addressing climate change challenge? Right. Well, we've already talked a little bit about how historically the ocean absorbed much of the um, of the temperature change. Uh, we also know that uh, the ocean absorbs a lot of the carbon that has been, been produced. So we talk a lot these days about nature-based climate solutions and whether those be, you know, the, a lot of people know about the uptake of carbon by trees and the storage of carbon in um, tree biomass. Uh, there's increasing discussion about um, uptake of carbon in agricultural soils. Well, we also know, as you said earlier, you know, two thirds of the of the world is covered by ocean, and the, and there's a tremendous amount of biological activity that goes on there. So there are clearly nature-based climate solutions that are part of um, a healthy ocean ecosystem. We know about. Uh, or think a lot more about what that means in coastal mangrove systems, in salt marshes, in in, um, in seagrasses inshore. We know those systems take up and store carbon. Uh, mangroves um, at a very high rate, although their global footprint footprint is relatively small. Uh, increasingly, there's attention to seaweeds, uh, you know, kelp, um, other products that are either grown or harvested in the wild for human consumption and other use. Um, but, you know, increasingly we know that seaweeds um, have a very large sort of global footprint and if restored and protected can be a big part of the carbon sort of uptake and, uptake and capture solution. Uh, but what's, on, what's only now beginning to get popularly a little more conversation is um, the exchange of carbon in the open ocean environment and the role that, you know, large marine animals like whales play in sort of stimulating us a local ecosystem that, you know, facilitates more sort of algal growth and, you know, uptake and, um, and that, that productivity is um, consumed and then is, um, is ultimately um, in significant amounts released into the um, deep ocean in, you know, bottom through what, you know, what's often referred to as marine snow. 
you know, waste products from, you know, animals in the food chain. Um, and we know that there are large stores of carbon in marine sediments, even in deep ocean environments that um, need to be protected there, but also can be enhanced through, you know, protection um, of, of large marine animals, uh, a healthy ocean environment that will lead to um, greater, uh, not only continued, but potentially greater uptake of carbon from the atmosphere at, at the open ocean interface. All that just reminds me why I love the ocean so much and it inspires <laughs> me. That's so awesome. Just thinking about the power of seaweed and kelp and all the grasses and mangroves are amazing. Um, shifting back last couple of questions here, short-term policy stuff. Um, you know, what's, what's coming up here? What are, what are the real opportunities? What's, what's the administration looking at right now or Congress looking at you guys looking at that, you know, trying to, trying to move in the, in the near term. Yeah, I think there are a number of uh, elements to that, Travis. I mean, one, and you know, we're super excited about the leadership of the Biden administration, uh, you know, back into uh, the global climate discussion. Uh, you know, President Biden has announced a, um, a leadership summit on climate next week to coincide with Earth Day. Um, and uh, as part of that, there is going to be a special session hosted by John Kerry. Um, and Jane Lubchenco, who many of us know, know well as a, um, who had, both of whom have come back into this administration to help advance uh, the climate agenda. And they're gonna be talking specifically about um, the ocean climate interface and some of the opportunities we've just referred to. You know, I think we're talking a lot about infrastructure and importantly, there are great discussions around uh, resilience investments we know that our coastal communities are challenged physically, you know, they're challenged economically, and to the greater extent that we can invest in our coastal communities, um, you know, we can position them to be a part of this ocean solution that we're talking about, whether that be as launch points for construction of, uh, of new wind power sites, um, to aquaculture opportunities, to um, sustainable marine fisheries, um, you know, as part of the domestic food solution. I mean, all of those things I think are going to dovetail very nicely with um, not only our return to the climate discussion, but to, with our um, emphasis on sort of rebuilding our domestic capacity, not just from an environmental perspective, but from a, from a jobs and, and, you know, economic viability perspective. And I think the coasts are going to be an important part of that discussion. You know, clearly we're going to continue to have conversations about 30 by 30, although, you know, I think that's kind of be initially more of an administrative set of discussions than it is a, a, a legislative one. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, an important conversation as well. And I think sort of rejoining the global dialogue and re-establishing um, ourselves as a, uh, you know, a global player around not just climate, but around ocean health. Is going to be an important part of the immediate discussion as well. Yeah. Well, you hit on the blue economy, they call it, right? The yeah. idea that, yeah. that taking care of the ocean can be a huge economic driver. Um, right. Lastly, I just want to ask, you know, where you sit on the, the scale of optimism about the, yeah. uh, the future of a sustainable ocean. I started out talking about these tremendous challenges, the, the variety of challenges, but how, how do you feel about, about the future of the ocean? Right. Well, I am optimistic, Travis, and I'm optimistic because, first of all, 
this renewed attention um, that the U.S. is bringing to the game is incredible. Is uh, is very important. Uh, but I also think there are people around the world that sort of understand the interdependence between, you know, their livelihoods, their very sort of, um, you know, survival and, you know, healthy ocean ecosystems. So there's a huge amount of focus. There's a huge amount of energy and enthusiasm that is being um, put forth both in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, and there are also sort of great breakthroughs in technologies, um, in science that are allowing us to understand, you know, as we've talked already, um, the important role that oceans can play and how we can help the oceans um, to play that role. So, uh, you know, I think we have sort of no choice but to act. Uh, and I think we certainly have the wherewithal to act. And I think today we have um, the focus and the commitment to act and we just need to press forward in that regard. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, the back part of this conversation, some of your optimism rubbed off on me talking about those <laughs> solutions and opportunities, you know, it's, it's exciting, especially science and technology. And, uh, when we kind of harness all these opportunities out there, but Eric, uh, I appreciate the time a lot. Um, it, you know, great perspective, great information and look forward to kind of following all this in the months and years ahead. Thank you, Travis. It's been great to be with you and, uh, really, you know, Glad you brought the focus to this set of issues. Thanks. Waterloop. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.